Amen. Thanks, Claire. And good morning. You doing all right? Great. The three of you are doing all right. Um, yeah, Joshua 5 and 6 this morning. Really the last three verses of Joshua chapter 5, all of Joshua chapter 6. And so, um, man, you know, I talked to somebody who was here in the first hour. Uh, by the way, I think I yelled at the first hour a little bit too much because, like, I'm losing my voice a bit. So don't worry if you see that. It's not the Rona. Already been there. Already done that. I just screamed a little bit too much in the first hour. So um, we'll make it. But anyway, I talked to somebody in the first hour um, about, like, the power of a paper Bible in your hand. And so if you're using your app, that's okay. But it's not this. You know, this doesn't distract you the way that the app in your hand distracts you. Either way, Joshua 5 and 6, that's where we're going to be today. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a cartoon in a Christian magazine. Um, this cartoon uh, in the kind of the foreground of the picture uh, were these two ancient Israelite soldiers. These dudes were armed to the teeth, right? They were ready for battle. Um, and they were looking at these plans for a battle. And you could see like the drawing of how they thought the battle was going to go on the piece of paper in front of them. And then in the background, like in the distance, the place the Israelite soldiers were preparing to take was clearly the walled fortress city of Jericho, right? And so you got these soldiers, you got their battle plans, you got Jericho in the background, these dudes are getting ready to take it. And kind of the punchline of the cartoon, one of them says to the other, what would Jesus do? Now, that was funny, I thought. But it sums up, it's okay if you didn't, but it sums up pretty well sort of the tension that a lot of us feel about the part of the Bible that we're about to step into, right? Over the next few chapters in the book of Joshua, we're going to see God's people whooping up on some of God's enemies. We're going to see the nation of Israel commanded by God to kill many people who were the former inhabitants of the land that God promised to Israel. Um, And the truth is that a lot of us, when we think about that picture, when we think about those ideas, when we think about what God commanded his people to do, like that just does not seem very consistent with the loving, gentle, benevolent God of the New Testament who sent Jesus to live among us and to die in our place for our sins. Right? We can really easily sort of think that the God of the New Testament, like he's kind and loving. The God of the Old Testament, he's wrathful and vengeful. We don't really know what to do with that. We don't know how to put those things together. If that's you today, you're not alone. Um, in fact, there is a, a sort of a long tradition in church history of, of wrestling with this very idea. There's a guy named Marcion of Sinope, who in the second century AD, he taught that actually the God of the Old Testament was this wrathful, vengeful, angry God, and that he was a completely different being and a completely inferior being to the God of the New Testament who spoke of love and forgiveness and grace and everything else, right? And so Marcion said, we're talking about two completely different gods. How Marcion responded to that, by the way, was he like ripped up and threw out the entire Old Testament. Actually, he ripped up and threw out most of the New Testament too because he didn't think that it fit in with like, his really specific vision of who God was. And so Marcion's Bible was super thin. It was a paper Bible, not an app. It was super thin. Ten, come on, 
That was, that was, that was something, right? Like if you're tracking with me there, that was, that was clever. Because it was clearly not in my notes. Like I didn't plan that, and so I need a little bit of credit. I don't have time for this. Um, all right, so Marcion's Bible, 10 letters of the Apostle Paul, and a little tiny bit of the Gospel of Luke, and that was it. Because those were the only parts of the Bible that Marcion thought accurately described the gentle, loving, forgiving God of the New Testament. And so he disregarded the Old Testament and the Old Testament God completely. So before us today is this tension. Old Testament God tells Israel to kill his enemies. New Testament God, love and grace and forgiveness. How do we put those things together? That's what we're going to see in Joshua 5, 13 through 6, 27. Um, so I'm not going to talk about every verse in this passage for sure this morning, but I am going to read every verse in this passage this morning. And so let's read God's word together. Joshua 5, 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and they returned into the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early, 
at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is God's word for us. Father, help us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may behold your glory and beauty in your word today. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in the book of Joshua for a few weeks now. Um, Joshua 6 is probably the most famous part of this book, right? The unlikely way that the Lord marshaled his people to overcome the impregnable fortress city of Jericho. This is the most famous part of the story. Like there's the old spiritual song that says, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and its walls came tumbling down. But hopefully you noticed as we read this passage together, that's not entirely true, right? Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. It's the Lord who fought the battle of Jericho. Now, as I said, it's a long passage. There are really two things that I want to point out. Um, The first comes at the very beginning of the portion that we read, uh, beginning in chapter 5, verse 13. Read verse 13 with me again. Joshua says, When Joshua was by Jericho, 
he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. A man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now, um, Bible scholars have spent a lot of time speculating about and debating about the exact identity of this dude who appears before Joshua by Jericho here in chapter 5. There are a lot of scholars who think that this man is an angel of the Lord who appears before Joshua. Um, And then there are a lot of Bible scholars who think that this man is actually the Lord himself come and, uh, you know, among Joshua, among his people in the flesh. And I wouldn't really need to get too much into um, who's right and who's wrong. There's not a lot at stake in this discussion. For what it's worth, I do think that this is an appearance of the Lord himself. But, But what is certainly true is that this dude would have been an awe-inspiring and fearsome sight, right? You notice that verse 13 says that Joshua, his eyes, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold. So there's this sense in which, right, Joshua's here and this man like looms before him. And so I imagine that his appearance was like radiant and, and glorious even. And we also know like ferocious because he's armed for battle and his drawn sword is in his hand, right? And so this dude, he's a fearsome looking dude, which is why it makes a lot of sense that Joshua's question to him is immediately, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Because Joshua knows that a battle's coming, right? Like he's, he's looking at Jericho. He knows that God has commanded him to lead God's people into the promised land and to conquer places like Jericho. Um, and so he's thinking to himself, all right, here's this radiant like warrior type guy. We have to go whoop up on those fools over there. I wonder if he's going to fight for us or if he's going to fight against us. And so he asks this angel of the Lord or the Lord himself, he asks him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And now that's not a yes or no question, but notice how this man responds. Verse 13 still, and Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now think about this question for a minute. He's thinking to himself, it'd be really nice if this guy fought for us. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Definitely don't want you fighting against us. And how does this man the angel or the Lord himself, how does he respond? He says, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. The point there, he's saying to Joshua, dude, you're asking the wrong question. Right? The question is not, is the Lord on your side? The question is, are you on the Lord's side? Right? The question is not, Is the commander of the army of the Lord going to fight for you? The question is, are you going to fight with the commander of the army of the Lord? The question is not, are you going to be with us? The question is, are we going to be with you? And that might seem like a slight difference to you, but that difference is actually kind of the key to unlocking what's about to happen in the coming weeks in our study of the book of Joshua. See, over the next six or so chapters of the book of Joshua, we're going to see God's people 
whooping up on a lot of people. We're going to see a lot of people die. Maybe that's just the best way to put it. But the thing is, we're going to see Israelites die and Canaanites die. We're going to see bloodshed on, on both sides of the aisle here. What, what makes sense of, of who's dying and who's not? Well, the, the, the angel or the Lord himself, he's telling us, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. In other words, like if you're against the Lord, his army is coming for you. But if you are for the Lord, his army is not. Here's how one commentator that I read this week puts this. I think it's clear and helpful. He says, God is neither straightforwardly for Israel nor straightforwardly against her enemies. Rather, as seen in the stories of Rahab, we talked about her a few weeks ago, she's in our passage again today, and the story of Achan, come back next week, we'll talk about him. What matters is alignment with and obedience to the Lord. The right question to ask is whether one is for the Lord or not, and not the other way around. What matters is not what country are you from? What matters is not what's your ethnicity? What matters is not what's your race? What matters is we see bloodshed upon bloodshed, battle upon battle, death upon death. What matters is who is your God and how devoted are you to his commands and to his promises? See, in the book of Joshua, God does not fight for Israel. It might seem like it, But in the book of Joshua, really, Israel fights for God. Which is why we would never rightly understand the events in the book of Joshua as something like a genocide. This is no holocaust. This is no bunch of people taking it upon themselves to wipe out a bunch of other people. This is the Lord God himself executing his just and sovereign purpose in the world, and using his people to do that. But that still begs the question, like what do we make of a God who justly and sovereignly overcomes, crushes, kills, defeats those who oppose him? I think we can get to that if we flip over. You can't flip over on an app. Page down on an app, but flip over to Joshua chapter 6, and on, in verse 17, like Joshua is, is giving the people the instructions the Lord has given him for how they're supposed to take the city, but he really slows down, and, and he gets like very specific starting in verse 17, and, and I think of this as like when my wife is giving my children instructions, and she's giving them a list of things to do, and then she pauses, and she says, okay, are you listening because this is the thing that I really want you to hear. Um, like this, is, this is the thing that Joshua really intends for the people to hear in verse 17. He says this, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. 
they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so the people respond and they obey him. And then look at how verse 21 just tells us that the deed is done. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. So what do we do with this God? What do we do with the God who devotes men and women, young and old, to destruction with the edge of the sword? Okay, I get it. Like the conquest, it's not Israel fighting, right? It's God fighting. But why does God do this? Maybe Marcion was onto something, right? Maybe this is a completely different God than the God of the New Testament who's loving and merciful and says things like, love your enemy, love your neighbor as yourself. What do we do with this? When I was eight years old, uh, my family and I, we lived in the Netherlands. That's another country in case you aren't aware. Um, My dad was in the U.S. Army. He was a major in the Army. And for three years, when I was third grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade, we were stationed in the Netherlands, um, which was an awesome experience. Um, My parents tried to make sure that we were cultured young men. I wanted to play with G.I. Joes. They wanted to make sure we were cultured. And so that meant that they, like, took us to, like, museums and stuff like that in Europe. And so I remember uh, this one time when I was eight years old, um, in third grade, we went to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, you don't know, as I didn't, um, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, it's the most famous art museum in the Netherlands. It's the place that houses the paintings of all the Dutch masters. If you've heard of dudes like Rembrandt and Van Gogh, their paintings um, are at the Rijksmuseum. And again, I was way more interested in G.I. Joe than art, and so I don't really remember much about the Rijksmuseum. I didn't care too much about being there. What I do remember, and what I did care very much about, is the fact that while we were in the Rijksmuseum, somebody smashed out the window of our sweet Volkswagen camper and stole a bunch of stuff from our car, including what was, at the time, my prized possession. Now, the things that were stolen, most of them were actually valuable. My prized possession wasn't valuable, but I missed it when it was stolen. It was this tiny little, probably plastic, cheap, but important to me, uh, film camera that shot like 110 millimeter film. If you're under the age of 30, you don't know what a film camera is, I realize, but anyway, As eight-year-old James really loved this camera. It was like one of my favorite things. And while we were inside the museum, you can't take cameras into the museum, right? So we had to leave them in the car. Somebody smashed the window of our van, stole some stuff, including my camera. Now, eight-year-old James was hot about that, right? Like I was was angry and not happy. I was like, "We we need to call the police, and the police need to come, and they need to find the bad guy that took my camera. And so not only did my parents have to deal with, like, whatever the actual consequences of this robbery were, you know, like, whatever valuable things that we lost and repairing the broken window of our van, they had to deal with, with James being a little bit irate because the police, like, weren't on their way to do their, like, CSI thing and, like, figure out who it was that had stolen my cheap little camera. And so then I thought, you know what, I don't, I don't need the police. I can take care of this. I've read a bunch of Hardy Boys books. Again, under the age of 30, you don't know what I'm talking about. But I thought, like, I'll figure out who it was that stole my camera, and I'll track that dude down. And, you know, eight-year-old James is going to take this guy on, and I'm going to get my camera back, and I'm going to bring him to justice. And eight-year-old James was, was mad about the bad guys. Maybe you've been in an experience a little bit like that. 
there's something deep inside of us as human beings that screams for justice and that screams against injustice. Right? When bad things happen, we want them to be put right. When it seems to us like people are getting away with evil, right? Like if you're in the grocery store and you witness somebody just like treating their child terribly, you're like, man, I want that person to get it. If you have a coworker who's like stealing from the office, like you want that coworker to get justice. If you're driving down the road and you see somebody driving recklessly, you know, like texting and swerving all over the place, driving way above the speed limit, you're like, man, where's the cop right now? Like you don't want the cop there when you're driving six miles over the speed limit. But when that guy is driving way over the speed limit, you're like, you want somebody to bring him to justice because we all of us, we know deep inside that like, justice is a good thing. And we're eager for it. We know that when, when bad things go unpunished, that always angers us because we believe in our heart of hearts that justice is good and right and necessary. Furthermore, no one wants to live in a world where evildoers go unpunished, where reckless drivers don't get tickets. Right? No one wants to live in a world where terrorists and dictators, you know, their evil is just unchecked. No one wants to live in a world where the dude who stole my camera doesn't get what he deserves. Because we know that justice is necessary for peace and for human flourishing. What's more than that, we know that injustice actually forces fallen human beings like us into violence, right? That's the, that was the impulse of eight-year-old me. Like, I wanted to, to find that bad guy and bring him to justice myself, and I would have used whatever means were available to eight-year-old me that were necessary. But that's always the truth. When there is no justice, our response as fallen human beings is violence. That's why the most corrupt nations in the world are also the most violent nations in the world. That's why the most corrupt places and societies are the most violent places and societies. Because when there is no justice, people take matters into their own hands and they use violence to force or make justice. This is the problem with the modern idea of a God who loves people but doesn't punish people. That's a really popular, prevalent, modern idea. This idea of a God who is all love and no wrath. A God who is all kindness and mercy and no justice and no vengeance. But modern people tend to love that idea, but the reality is that God would be a terrible God and the society that God ruled over would be a terrible society because we actually need justice in order for there to be peace and human flourishing. I'm really compelled by the way uh, the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf puts this. This is a little bit heady, but I won't talk about it for long. But I just want you to, to think about this with me. Wolf, he teaches at Yale now. He, um, he's Croatian, so he grew up in the Balkans, like, and he witnessed ethnic cleansing in his homeland as he was growing up. Right? He witnessed genocide in his homeland as he was growing up. And he writes this. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that we should desire a God who refuses to judge. Right, that's the modern idea, that a God who doesn't judge people would be good. He says it takes the quiet of a suburban home for that idea to be born. On the flip side, in the sun-scorched land, 
soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die. In other words, people who have suffered injustice don't have any room in their minds or hearts for this God who's all love and no wrath. People who have suffered injustice, their hope is that God will judge evildoers. Their hope is that the Hitlers and Stalins of history will finally one day pay for what they've done. Right? Their hope is in the just judgment of God. The truth is, like if you have no God of justice, then there's no hope for the world. Right? It's only if there's a God of just judgment that there can possibly be hope in the world. Now, what does this have to do with Joshua? I'm glad you asked. When God promised Abraham that his descendants would inhabit the promised land, let me, let me read you one of the things that he said to Abraham. This is in Genesis chapter 15. Right? He said, Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants this land. I'm not giving you this land right now, but generations from now, they're going to come back and they're inhabit this land. Why was it going to be later? Well, this is what he said in Genesis 15, 16. He says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites, those are the people who live in the land. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What is implied there is the fact that the Amorites were sinners. That's their iniquity, right? But God, in his patience and in his kindness, was going to give them time to turn from their sin. He was going to give them time to turn back to him. But God was not going to be patient forever. Their wickedness, their evil, it could wear God's patience thin. Eventually, their sins would reach the limit and God would bring judgment and he would use his people to execute that judgment. Now, the rest of the first few books of the Old Testament, they, they unpack this idea even further. For example, in Leviticus chapter 18, God condemns the sexual immorality of the inhabitants of the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, he further condemns them because they're people who practice human sacrifice. And so God continues to point out the sin of the people who inhabit the promised land, the sin of the Amorites or the Canaanites. It's the same people. This is how he sums all of that up. This is Deuteronomy 9, verse 5. God is speaking now through Moses to his people. And he says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. So it's not because you're good, but because they're wicked that the Lord is going to drive out the nations. He's going to use you to justly judge the people of Canaan. And so what we have to realize is that the conquest, what we see here in Jericho and in the chapters that are going to come, right? this is God's just judgment against the Israelites, I'm sorry, using the Israelites against the Canaanites for the sin of the Canaanites. Now that's still a pretty serious and sobering idea, I realize. But what we should realize is that these are not features or characteristics of some ancient, long-forgotten God. Right? The Bible tells us that God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And so 
That means that the same God who commands the conquest rules over you and over me today. His justice is still perfect and it's still real. His judgment, it's still serious and still sobering today. And what's more, we have to realize our sin demands that we sit under God's just judgment. Right, what does Joshua ask the Lord? He says, are you for us or for our enemies? God says, no. Because his highest purpose, his deepest allegiance is to be true to himself. Right, the thing that God is most committed to in the world is to being God, which means he must be just. He must be holy. He must be consistent with his own character. He must bring evildoers to justice. Evildoers like me and like you. When Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, the Bible tells us that there was darkness over the whole land in the middle of the day. The gospel writers say from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, we know that means from about noon to 3 p.m., there was total darkness over the land as Jesus hung dying on the cross. Now, a lot of people um, over history have, have tried to explain that darkness in natural terms. Like some of them have said that there must have been like a solar eclipse that blocked out the sun so that it was dark for three hours. And I'll admit it is possible for a solar eclipse to block out the sun. It is possible for a solar eclipse to cause darkness in the middle of the day, but it's only possible for that to happen for like a couple of minutes, right? A solar eclipse can't block out the sun for three whole hours. Other people have suggested that there must have been like a massive windstorm that like whipped up a bunch of sand and dust and that that made it seem like it was dark in the middle of the day in Israel. But the truth is that Jesus was crucified at Passover, which falls during the, the wet season in Israel. And so it's very, very unlikely that there would be any dust at all, so that even if there was wind, there's no sand to be like whipped up into the air. No, it's almost certain that the darkness in the middle of the day that the gospel writers record, that multiple historical accounts talk about, it's very likely that the darkness in the middle of the day was a supernatural darkness. Now, supernatural darkness in the Bible, it's always a symbol of God's justice. It's a symbol of his just, righteous judgment and wrath. Maybe you can think about the book of Exodus when before the angel of death passes over the land of Egypt, an expression of God's judgment against Pharaoh. There's darkness in the day before the angel of death comes. Or maybe you're familiar with the prophets who again and again and again talk about God's coming justice and they speak about like the night of the Lord and the darkness of the Lord descending on God's people. And so when Jesus hung on the cross, it was dark in the middle of the day because God, it was a symbol of his judgment. But who was God judging? Now the Bible also tells us that as Jesus hung on that cross dying, among his last words were the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've always really been cut to the heart by that. I mean, there were a lot of people in Jesus's life who by that point in time 
had forsaken him. You know, just a week earlier, massive crowds had surrounded him as he entered into Jerusalem. All of those people had forsaken him by now. The religious leaders who should have known that he was the Messiah, they had forsaken him. Some members of Jesus' own family had forsaken him. Even his disciples, his most loyal followers, by this point in time, they had forsaken him. But Jesus, as he hung dying in the darkness on the cross, he didn't cry out, my friends, my friends, why have you forsaken me? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, as Jesus endured God's just judgment for all of his people, the Father forsook the Son. As the song says, the Father turned his face away from the Son. The perfect love and union and fellowship within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. It was broken because Jesus endured God's just judgment for us. Now there's a principle that I think about when, when I think about that picture. The principle is the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the pain of its loss. The longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the pain of its loss. So imagine after the worship gathering today that a member of our church came up to me in the lobby and they said, Sharp, we're done. I never want to see you again. Like that would hurt if somebody said that to me. I've been here over two years, right? I've, I've loved that person for over two years, right? If they said, you know what, that's it, we're done, and walk out the door, that would grieve me. But you know what would grieve me far, far more is if, as we were wrapping up the day tonight, my wife Kristen looked at me and she said, James, I just can't do this anymore. I'm done. The longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the pain of its loss. The longer you've known someone and loved someone, the harder it is for that love to come to an end. Think about that. And then think about the love that was disrupted when God the Father forsook God the Son. Now the Bible tells us that the triune God exists and has existed from before the beginning of eternity. And so there has never been a moment when God the Father did not perfectly and intimately love God the Son. There has never been a moment when God the Son did not enjoy perfect union and relationship and fellowship with God the Father until that day when Jesus hung in that darkness on that cross and endured the just judgment of God for us. You see, friends, what we've already said is that if there is no God of justice, there's no hope for the world because terrorists go free and nobody punishes Hitler. And again, that guy who took my camera, like he, he gets off scot-free, right? If there's no God of justice, then there's no hope for the world. But a far greater problem than that is if there is a God of justice because if there is a God of justice, there's no hope for you and there's no hope for me unless we have a mediator unless we have someone who will bear our sin and our shame, unless we have someone who will endure the just judgment of God that we deserve, which is exactly what Jesus did for us. That's exactly who Jesus is. Do you know him? Have you trusted in him as the one who mediates your sin? We've talked about a lot of heady stuff this morning. So let me just close 
briefly with two things to do. Like two words of application here. If there is a God who will justly judge all people, if there is a God who will crush cities that oppose him and who crushed his one and only son so that his people could be his people. If that God exists, the Bible says he does, I believe he does. If that God exists, then let me just say, no half measures. You're either in or you're out with that God. That's not a God to whom you give a part of your life. That's a God whom you either reject completely or to whom you give everything. Right, you don't bring that God into your life and say, all right, I'm glad that you're here on Sundays, but I'm gonna be in charge the rest of the week. No, you bow your knee to that God or you reject that God completely and totally. No half measures. Some of us, I fear that like, we want like a couple of religious boxes that we'll check on occasion to make ourselves feel good, to do what we think we're supposed to do, to get the people who are dragging us to church off of our back. Right, we, want, we want Jesus in our life. We're fine with him. He's not a big deal, right? But we want him to be like one planet that's in orbit around me, right? We want him to be among the other things in our lives, but really we want ourselves to be at the center. If this God is real, he is worthy and he is the only one worthy of being the sun that holds everything in its center of gravity. So please don't waste your time. Either be all in or not in at all. Because there can be no half measures with this God. Second thing, if this is true, the Bible says that it is, and I believe that it is. If this is true, then we ought to be a people who are marked by gentleness and love and grace. Because we'll be people who realize that we deserve to be the citizens of Jericho. We deserve to be among those who were devoted to destruction when the walls came tumbling down. You need to wrestle with that. I'm not spiritually superior to the citizens of Jericho, and neither are you. You're in this room today because God, in his kindness, ordained for you to be born at a time and in a place when someone would tell you about him and call you to love him and follow him. That's not because you were awesome. It's because he was awesome. He hasn't saved you because there was something good in you. He saved you because there's something good in him and he's called you to be a part of that. And the result of that is that you should be a humble and gentle and meek and loving person. You should be quick to forgive and slow to anger. You should be tender. You should be impossible to offend, right? You should just be so kind, so merciful and you should give yourself to pursuing God and his justice. You should give yourself to making the world that you live in a better place because your God is just and he gave his life in order to bring you into his family. So we should be a people who are just marked by grace and kindness. Can I just invite you to think about what it would look like if we actually lived like that? I mean, just think about how gloriously weird our church would seem to the outside world, right? The world we live in, people blow up at you if you like make one misstep. What if we were just marked by grace and kindness? In the world we live in, people hold on to bitterness like it's a weapon. What if we were marked by forgiveness and mercy? 
Can you imagine just how like glorious that would seem? Weird, but glorious. Can you imagine how impossible it would be to ignore the truth of who Jesus is if we live that way? Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would help us to believe that these things are true. Help us to have a right and clear understanding of your love and your wrath, of your mercy and your just judgment. And help us to see and believe how those things have come together on the cross of your son, Jesus. In light of those things, move us, lead us to live our lives for you with no half measures. And move us and lead us to live lives of gentle tenderness and forgiveness and mercy towards others. Pray that in the name of Jesus.